Good morning. It's so good to see each one of you here today. We're so thankful you chose to be with us. We do have a number of guests, and we want you to know that you're always welcome here at Midway. As we mentioned this morning in our Bible class hour, our theme for the year is The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And each week this year, we'll be looking at different battles that we face. And, of course, today we're looking at a battle that many people face, and that is the battle of depression. And our theme for today has been and continues to be defeating depression. If you were here this morning for the Bible class hour, you know that we are continuing to be in for a treat today. And, and uh, the help that we are receiving from the from the information that uh, Brother Lonnie is passing along will be long-lasting. I do want to say this morning that uh, I know that many have requested already CDs of today's lessons. If you would like to have a copy of the CDs, there is a sign-up list out on the table in the foyer, so feel free to, to put your name and address on that, and we'll be glad to get those to you after uh, today. We'll... Uh, Larry is recording them, and he'll be making the CDs as soon as possible. We'll get them to you as soon as we possibly can. Our speaker today, of course, is Brother Lonnie Jones. Uh, he is no stranger to many of us here. He has spoken many times in different area events in regard to teams and other things, and we're thankful that he was available and able to be with us today. Brother Lonnie is a unique individual. He spent many years in youth ministry and helping young people, but he also was a licensed practical counselor. But in addition to that, many of you know, some may not, uh, he has served as chaplain for the SWAT team in uh, the Huntsville area, and, and, and that's sort of a, a different thing. Preachers don't get involved in things like that a lot of times, and they should. But uh, that gives him some insight and some involvement in some things that, that uh, are very interesting, and, and we're thankful that he's able to do those kinds of things. Also teaches, as he mentioned this morning, a ropes course and uses that to instruct people not only about climbing but about different situations of life. And, and again, that's a unique thing, and we're thankful that he's able to be involved in that. But by profession, he is a licensed practical counselor, and the help that he brings to people in the lives of, uh, of folks today, that, that means so, so much. He's married. He's a father. He's been married to his wife, Jackie, for more than 30 years. Uh, his daughter is grown. She's married, lives in Dalton, Georgia, I think uh, the website says. And, and so uh, I, I know that, that uh, uh, he, he is proud of her. But uh, today, again, we're thankful that he's here with us, and we'll turn the floor over to Brother Lonnie. Again, thank you for letting me be your guest today. Uh, I may not stay behind this podium the whole time. Uh, Y'all are so far away. And... Uh, Rip, word must have got out on a spitter. I don't know if the kids scooted away back, but I may just come down. Is that okay if I don't stand up here? Sometimes people can't see me if I'm on the floor, but I think I'm just going to migrate if that's all right. That's, that's too far away. I'm going to have to change my website. Uh, Lonnie Beth and Tyler just told us I'm going to be granddad. Twins. So I'm building a monster treehouse in my backyard. I've got four class two 35-foot telephone poles uh, in the yard and this spring, I'll probably get those up and 
If you need a good treehouse plant, talk to me. But uh, we're going to have millions arriving maybe in June, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I think my, my grand I hadn't worked out my grandpa name yet. I think I'm going to make him call me Red Bull, because that's what they're going to drink at my house. <laughs> I'm going to pay a lot of Beth Jones back or some of that stuff. But uh, we're excited for them. Uh, they've had some trouble with, with that. They lost a little baby this summer. And the twins make it a little difficult, so pray for them. And we'd like to see both those little individuals show up. Right now, I think they told me they're the size of lemons. Uh, they were the size of gummy bears, and a week later, they're the size of lemons. And so they're progressing pretty rapidly. She's a tiny little thing. She's four foot ten, so there's not a lot of room in there. And so uh, they'll probably come early, but uh, we solicit your prayers and stuff. When we talked about depression this morning, I kind of wanted to give you a primer on the cognitive distortions and how sometimes we, we, we get things going uh, in our minds. Uh, we, we call those things that, that cause the cognitive distortions, sometimes we call them precipitating events. If we get a SWAT call out and there's somebody that's uh, in a building and it's not a, a true hostage situation and it's not somebody who's committing a robbery or something, but an individual's just cutting up and we've got to go uh, bring some some calm to the chaos, usually within 24 to 48 hours before that event occurred, they've had something that triggered it, some kind of precipitating event, and that precipitating event moves them out of their logical mind into their emotional mind. Uh, when you're discussing things with a teenager and your heart rate goes above 100 beats a minute, once your heart rate goes above 100 beats a minute, you move from this part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, into the mid part of your brain. The mid part of your brain is the emotional part of your brain. The emotional part of your brain is about as complicated as a goat. And you see things in black and white, all or nothing thinking. You see everything as a threat. You don't listen very well. You don't process humor very well. You don't process logic at all. And so when you get triggered by some event that moves you into an emotional mindset, it causes you to have distorted thinking. And that's one of the big precursors for depression to take place. And so we're going to do two case studies today, one at this hour and then one after lunch, talking about just kind of dealing with some of the the functions and some of the ideas around the distorted emotional thinking and our reaction to it and kind of study the reaction of, of the guys that were involved in it. If you have your Bibles, we'll look at 1 Kings chapter 19. I don't know that I would call this spiritual depression uh, or would just call it a crisis event, but I think it has a lot of uh, comparable points. 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Now when you read that one little verse, it's one of those things that is so full of information that if you don't have the back story, you lose some of the, some of the important information. Ahab told, Elijah, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. All that Elijah had done was that he'd gone to Mount Carmel and at Mount Carmel he called an assembly of the people of Israel and he gave them this challenge. He said, how long will you falter between two opinions? Now, that Hebrew word sometimes can be translated dance. 
How long will you dance between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. And what had happened is the children of Israel had, had prostituted themselves spiritually in serving a false god named Baal. The ritualistic worship of Baal involved a ritualistic dance. So he's playing a word game with them. How long are you guys going to dance with the wrong partner? How, how long are you guys going to try to dance between two, with two partners? How long are you guys going to falter between one of these? If Yahweh, if the Hebrew God, the Creator God, if He's God, serve Him. And if Baal is God, serve Him. Now his name is probably actually Baal. But we're Southern, so we call him Baal. Uh, his, his real name was Baal or Baal Zebul, which meant the Lord and Master of all. And the faithful Old Testament prophets often called him Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. And you know where flies hang out. <laughs> so this is pretty serious trash talk on old Baal. And in fact, that name got to be so popular with the, the trash talk against Baal that even in the New Testament, you find the word Beelzebub as the prince of demons. And we've used it now to talk about the devil or Satan or the prince of demons. And it really is located, uh, actually its origins go back to this false god. So Elijah's on Mount Carmel and says, look, you've got to pick one. You can't have both. How long will you dance between two opinions? If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. People didn't say a word. He said, let me propose this contest. You build an altar, I'll build an altar, and we'll ask our gods to light the altar. And the God that answers by fire, that will be God. And the people said, hey, that's, that's a good plan. That's good. Now, the interesting thing is, Baal rode the thunder clouds. His chariot was the thunder clouds. His arrows and his spear were lightning bolts. Lighting a little altar shouldn't be a big deal for Baal. So Elijah says, you guys go first. Now I think Elijah's a pretty smart fellow. Because if you have simultaneous altars going on, you, you might have some, some debate about who lit whose altar. Uh, I was in Strickland, Mississippi several years ago. Uh, when I get invited to speak at places, I drive over early enough to make sure my GPS will not lie to me. And so I walked in this old church building earlier than I needed to be, and two old gentlemen were standing there talking. And obviously you walk into a building early and you're the stranger, they know you're the preacher. So the guy says, Preacher, come here. So I went over there. He said, Me and Charlie came up with this plan. Actually, Charlie came up with the plan. He said, Let's buy two hogs. And we'll buy these two hogs and we'll put them in Charlie's pen and we'll feed them and we'll raise them and then when they get big enough, we'll take them to the market, we'll sell them and we'll share the money off of our hogs. He said, I think that's a good idea. He said, this morning, Charlie told me one of those hogs got out and got hit in the highway. He said, I asked Charlie, which hog got hit? Charlie said, your hog. Okay. <laughs> Elijah was smarter than a hog farmer. All right? Elijah says, you guys go first and we'll see what happens with you. Because if you've got two altars rocking and then one of them lights up, somebody could easily say, hey, our God lit your altar just to show you a point. And so Baal lets these guys build their altar. And they pray. And they jump around. One of the saddest verses in the Bible, no one answered, no one paid attention, there was no voice. That's a sad, sad verse because these people really probably believe that what they're trying to serve is authentic. They begin to cut themselves. They begin to lash themselves. They begin to be frantic. And again, the Bible says there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. When we are in crisis, physically, spiritually, or emotionally, we will seek solutions that make us feel better even when those solutions are invalid. 
Be very, very careful that you don't let your severe pain drive you into something that you shouldn't do. Uh, I didn't deer hunt when Jackie and I got married. Uh, just roamed around, did some squirrel hunting, did some rabbit hunting. But I got involved in deer hunting a little bit. And uh, back in those days in Alabama, you could only kill, you know, antlerless deer. And I like to fill the freezer. You know, them horns are hard to eat. But now I, I, I will kill a big old buck if he walks out. But I'm just mostly into deer sausage and a backstrap and some things. But uh, you can only kill a, a doe couple of days after Thanksgiving, a couple of days after Christmas. Well, being a full-time minister, you didn't get a lot of time off, and so when you were off at Thanksgiving, you had to go see Mom and Daddy. You're off at Christmas, you had to go see my Mom and Dad. My Mom and Dad live in the city. There's no hunting available. Jackie's Mom and Dad live in Arkansas, so it seemed like all of my good hunting days I was spending on the road in Arkansas. And I asked her one day, I said, Sweetheart, can't we just delay one or two days so I can get in the woods? She said, Why don't you hunt at my dad's place? I said, your dad doesn't have any hunting land. He said, no, my dad doesn't own any of it, but his aunt does and his sister does and his cousin does and found out I've got about a square mile I can hunt in Velvet Ridge, Arkansas. So I love to go to Arkansas now. So we went to Arkansas. A lot of that stuff had been row cropped through the years and there's not any real good trees to climb with a climber, but I found this little spot between a, a cut over and a pond and a little field that I thought, you know, if I'll camp out right there, I can, uh, I can find me a deer. So I climbed this tree early one morning, but my deer stand wouldn't sit level. There was some kind of a knot or a limb or a vine there. I took this little saw out of my backpack, and I sawed this vine off. It was a fuzzy vine. And some of that sawdust off that fuzzy vine got in my glove and on my hand. And by noon, my hand was on fire. I don't know what it was. Some people have told me it was some kind of poisonous vine. Some people have told me it was sumac or thunderwood. I've heard all kinds of explanations as what... I think it was leprosy vines, what I think it was. But my hand was on fire from the tip of my finger almost all the way up to my elbow. And it bothered me that whole trip. We got home and my hand was, was infected and it was on fire. I had salve and I had cream and I took shots and I took pills and I couldn't get my hand to clear up. I was hunting up on putting the mountain with Jim Goins. Jim's a, now a retired SWAT cop. Jim's a good friend of mine. and We hunt together a lot. Came out of the woods and sitting at the truck eating a sandwich, and Jim said, well, you ready to go back in the woods? I said, Jim, i got to go home. I said, my hand's on fire. I can't stay out here in the dark. I, I've got to go home. Jim said, you know, when I was growing up, we had this thing we did. We'd take a dirt dauber nest and make a paste, and it would cure diaper rash on a baby. He said, you ought to try that. So I ought to try that. So I, we walked around, found this old barn, and knocked some dirt dauber nest down, poured some water from my canteen, mixed it up in a paste with my knife, coated my hand with that stuff, cut the tail end of a t-shirt off, wrapped it up, put a little tape on it, put my glove on, hunted till dark, had a pretty good afternoon, did a good thing. Came back out to the truck, sitting there, I was unwrapping my stuff, Jim said, how'd you pull this work? I said, well, it worked okay. He goes, well, I'm sure glad, because I just made that up. I said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, I don't want to quit hunting, I just want to, I was in enough pain that I fell for the dirt dauberness trick. Well, sometimes when you're in pain and you're in crisis, somebody will tell you, hey, just leave your wife. Hey, God wants you to be happy. You don't have to take that from them. Well, smoke one of these, take one of these. I do this, it makes me feel better. And sometimes if you're in enough pain, you'll believe a lie. And you'll serve something that's not real. So these guys are cutting themselves and dancing around Nothing happens. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. 
And finally, at the time of the evening sacrifice, the, the prophets of Baal stand down. Elijah builds an altar. Now, an Old Testament altar was not an elaborate thing. God told Moses, when you build an altar to me, you, you put 12 stones on it. You don't touch those stones with a tool because once you've touched those stones with a tool, you've corrupted it. So an Old Testament altar was 12 filled stones. You just pull the rocks out of the ground and stack them up. I guess you could stack them in a circle of four or three high or a circle of three four high, but that's it. It was a stack of rocks. The emphasis was not the altar. The emphasis was the God it represented. Elijah builds this altar, puts the wood on it, puts the ox on it, digs a trench around it, and pours water on it several times, enough water that will hold five quarts of water in this little ditch. And Elijah simply says, God, please let these people know that I'm your prophet. Please let these people know that you are God and I've done this at your command. And while he was speaking, the fire fell down from heaven. It ate, consumed the sacrifice, consumed the wood, melted the rocks, licked up the dust, and got the water out of the trench. And the people said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, Take the prophets of Baal to the brook Kishon and execute them with the sword. Now that's the report that Ahab tells Jezebel. When Ahab goes to tell Jezebel, he tells her all that Elijah had done. How he sacrificed to God, the God answered by fire, and he executed the prophets of Baal. And so once Jezebel gets this report, she sends this message to Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Elijah's been on Mount Carmel and he's asked God to, to light an altar and God answers him by fire and then he gets this nasty gram from this woman. And she says, I've asked the gods to punish me if you're not dead by this time tomorrow. What's your response to that? If I'd just come from Mount Carmel and got this letter from her, dear Jezebel, meet me at Mount Carmel. <laughs> Stand way over there. And you ask your gods to kill me and I'll ask my gods to kill you. We'll see how that works out for you. But instead of having that response, for whatever reason, this message from this woman is a precipitating or a triggering event for Elijah. And when he saw that, he arose, he ran for his life, he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there and he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and he said, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life for I am no better than my father's. Elijah gets this message from Jezebel and for whatever reason that message serves as a triggering event to pitch him into emotion-based thinking or a crisis mode. Maybe even a depressive episode. Because you'll notice he has the classic symptoms of depression. He disengages in an attempt to insulate himself. He isolates himself. He becomes inactive and he's thinking morbidly about death. I wouldn't go as far as to say he's suicidal, but he's thinking that the only way I can feel better is just to be dead. That's pretty classic depressive symptoms. And by the way, suicide ideology, when people are thinking about suicide... Uh, usually when people manifest suicidal thoughts, they are either trying to communicate something, avoid something, or control something. 
If you can identify which one of those it is, you probably find out that that suicidal thinking is pretty irrational thought process because it's not going to leave the message you think it's going to leave. You're not really going to control anything by killing yourself and you really won't avoid the ultimate consequences by doing that either. So, But anyway, Elijah gets this trigger from, from Jezebel and it spins him out of control. And there's a, a couple of interesting things that happen in, in these kind of situations. Whatever the triggering event, we'll use Jezebel as the triggering event. Number one, you notice how much power he gives her words. Elijah gave Jezebel's words more power than he gave God's word. Elijah put more emphasis on what Jezebel said she would do than what he'd already witnessed God doing. It's very easy to become depressed spiritually or physically, emotionally or psychologically when we give somebody else's words more power than we should give them. Honestly, this, this whole bullying thing is, makes me want to poke myself in the eye with a fork. Your words only have the power that I give them. Period. Drama on Facebook, Twitter, Gram, Instaface, whatever it is the kids are using, all that stuff starts happening. And really, your words only have the power I give them. A lie is only as true as you let it be. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. If you don't believe, even God's word does not have any effect in your life. And if God's word is limited by whether or not I buy into it, your words are definitely limited by whether or not I buy into it. But Elijah allows this woman's words to have more power on him than God's word. Elijah allows what she's going to do, what she says she's going to do, to be more powerful than what he's already experienced that God has done in his life. Sometimes when we get that distorted thinking, and we give those people more power in our lives than, than, they, should, than they should, we make really, really bad choices. Uh, when Lonnie Beth was little, well, not little, when she was a teenager, I had this wonderful experience as a dad. I got to interact with teenage boys. <laughs> I figured out something really quick. If you've got a teenage daughter, and there's a teenage boy comes at your house, if he likes your daughter, you can treat him any way you want to, and he'll come back. <laughs> You don't have to be polite. You can have a lot of fun at his expense. It's really, really cool stuff. I mean, really. Uh, I'm five foot four. I don't have a basketball goal at my house. I don't. I didn't. I always have one. I don't have one anymore. I've got a jewel net in my garage, but I don't have a basketball net. This kid from the high school basketball team was at our house playing ping pong in my garage. He's about six foot two. If he turned sideways, stuck his tongue out, he looked like a zipper. I mean, just a little bitty skinny kid. Played basketball for the high school. I was sitting there trying to watch TV, knowing there's a boy and my daughter in the garage playing ping pong. They come in for some refreshment, and this skinny kid says, Hey, Mr. Jones, I notice you've got a, a wrestling mat in your garage. Would you like to wrestle? <laughs> you know, wow. Lazarus didn't get up that fast, okay? I mean, I got off that couch and started taking stuff off. All of us behind him going, no, Dad, no, Dad. Come out of here, son. So we get out there. I said, you take your right hand, put it on your left shoulder, and you do that. He said, what does that mean? I said, that means you can't breathe. And I taught him a chokehold. It's called a baseball bat grip. And I put him to sleep in 17 seconds. It's awesome. Uh, he came back the next night for supper. Not a very smart young man, but you know what? He really didn't care about me. He was interested in being in the company of my beautiful daughter. If I can say anything 
or not say anything, do anything or not do anything that makes you leave the church, you and the Lord weren't that tight in the first place. Please understand that, that sometimes we say this is the reason we did something because of what they did or said or didn't do or didn't say. And, and there's reasons that sound good, but then there's good sound reasoning. And the two things aren't always friends. And when we get into that emotion-based thinking, we allow somebody else's words to have more power than they should, and we allow their actions to have more power than they should. And so Elijah lets what this woman has said have this kind of power, and in an attempt to insulate himself from the pain, he isolates himself. Now, one of the things he's going to complain about is he's alone. He's going to complain that he's by himself. Well, why is he by himself? He left and went to Beersheba, left his servant, and walked as far as he could walk a day into the wilderness. And then he said, I'm alone. How many times do we disengage from the church and say, I'm just not close to anybody there anymore? We come in at the last minute and leave at the first minute. We quit coming to Bible class. We don't go to fellowships. We don't ask people to eat out with us. We don't eat out with them when they've asked us. We don't visit the hospital. We don't send cards. We don't make phone calls and say, hey, the people in the church don't care about nobody. Now, you may have been hurt. You may have been discouraged. You may have been traumatized. But if you take that and in an attempt to insulate yourself, you isolate, that's bad medicine. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with having some insulation. Jesus often departed and would spend the night in prayer with God. Jesus would take his disciples out into an area and, and, and try to teach them privately. Jesus would fast for 40 days in the wilderness to prepare for his ministry. There's nothing wrong with some proper insulation. But so many times when we're isolated, we let our feelings control what we do and because I don't feel like going or doing or being or talking, I don't. And then that insulation becomes isolation. So he, he gives those words too much power. Then he makes a bad strategy to protect himself because his insulation becomes isolation. And then the third thing that happens is notice this phrase where he says, it is enough. Please contrast that with the phrase where Jesus says, it is finished. Because the concept of it is enough versus the concept of it is finished are two very different concepts. And oftentimes when we get depressed and we get discouraged and there's some triggering event, we decide to quit before our job is done. We decide to finish or we set something up that, that, that in somehow in our minds we say, if I just get to this point, I'm allowed to disengage and allowed to stop. Uh, as was mentioned, I have been assigned to a SWAT team for 24 years as their chaplain. Now, I'm not a shooter. I'm not an operator. Uh, you know, I'm not one of those guys. I, I, I am the rappel master. I teach all the young kids how to rappel. I, I go with them on their assignments. I go with them when they serve warrants. I fool around, help teach at the academy. Mostly what I do with them is I work out with them on workout nights. I attend the call-outs, and then I'm the bad guy in the building. I've been playing professional hide-and-go-seek for 24 years. I hide in the building, the SWAT team comes and finds me. Well, one day we're getting in. Typically, PT with a SWAT team is you run. We're going to get together, we're going to run, do some pull-ups, do some push-ups. Well, as the team has gotten older and the guys that are coming into the team have gotten younger, the philosophy is fitness has changed. So one Tuesday morning, I show up 
for one Tuesday afternoon I show up at training to go hang out with the guys in this young, inactive Marine. There's no such thing as a former Marine. There's no such thing as an ex-Marine. They are inactive Marines. I have been <laughs> schooled on that. This young, inactive Marine, Brad Snipe, said, Hey, I've got us an opportunity to work out at a CrossFit gym. You guys know what CrossFit is? It's 1940s farming that you pay $100 an hour to, for, to make someone make you do, okay? I mean, you're lifting tractor tires and carrying pigs. and I mean, it's really weird stuff. And it's hard work. So we show up to this CrossFit gym, and it's not a traditional gym. It's got all this apparatus in there. And the guy says, we name all of our workouts. And the workout I'm going to put you guys through, first time in the door for most of us on a CrossFit thing, he said, the workout we're going to do is called Fight Gone Bad. I've never been in a fight that went that bad. Okay? Let me just tell you that. So he starts explaining what we're going to do, and he says, now, every time you do a proper execution, we'll give you a point. Now, if it's not a proper execution, you don't get a point. So you might be doing push-ups with a hand, uh, a, a, a hand and a foot on a, a medicine ball and one ballast on your head, and you're trying to do your push-ups, and he'll go one, two, 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 until you get it right, you don't get three. Okay? So they're brutal. So he gives us this workout, and he says, Now, if you're a first-time CrossFitter or you've never done much like this before, then, you know, you could a respectable score would be 150. I was north of 45 years old at that time. And I thought, 150, that's my goal. These young guys are in here with me. I'll do 150 or I'll die. So I get on the CrossFit thing and we start doing our stuff. Now, I'm not the best in the world at math. But I figured out pretty quick, hey, the kid's going to get 150. So I started kind of sandbagging a little bit. You know, I'd do my thing, pay my dues, and I could slack up a little bit. I didn't throw it, but watch, you know. I mean, I was really working out on this stuff. We finished this 18 minutes of pure torture. I'm laying in the floor making a pain angel, and this inactive Marine walks by me, and I yell up at him. I say, hey, Snipes, I did 157. How many did you do? He said, all I could, and walked out the door. I said, it is enough. I got my limit and I quit. Snipe said I gave 100% on every execution, on every revolution, on every repetition, on every set. And that's a big difference when you're fighting depression as to whether you can say, I'm done. Or whether you can ask yourself, am I finished yet? Am I through being a husband? Have I done my job? Am I through being a wife? Am I through being a Christian? Am I through being a neighbor? And unless you can look back and look at what you've done and say, my job is complete, I've done all I could, then there's no place for tapping out. There's no place for quitting. There's no place for saying, it's enough. It's got to be, it's finished. And really, I know that sounds a little bit like a spin doctoring, but honestly, the best cure for depression is to act better than you feel. 20 minutes a day, three times a week, cardiovascular activity will help resolve a lot of symptomology in, in depression. And you'll notice one of the big things about being depressed is I don't want to do anything, I don't want to go anywhere, I want to be with anybody. And if you let those feelings control you, but you don't do your job for that day, it's going to be very difficult to dig out of that pit. Now let's continue to look at Elijah. So Elijah says it's enough, and then finally when God confronts him, when God asks him, what are you doing here? Notice what he says. Verse 10 of 1 Kings chapter 19. 
Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. How much of Elijah's dialogue is about his responsibility and how much of his dialogue is about what everybody else is doing? They've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets. I'm the only guy left and they're going to kill me. You see how easy it would be to get discouraged if we spent all of our time thinking about what everybody else is doing? And by the way, it was a positive and a negative. I look at all these people and think they're failing in their reprobates. It's easy to be discouraged. Sometimes it's easy to look at all these people and think they're better than me. And I'm not good enough, so I quit. Let me tell you something, folks. When I compare what I know about me inside versus what I can only see about you outside, I lose every time. Because my insides never match up to your outsides. Because I don't know your thoughts. I don't know your fears. I don't know your dreams. I don't know your bad days. All I do is get to see you on Sundays and Wednesdays. And when I compare my insides with your outsides, my insides lose every single time. And so it works both ways. I either see these people as all evil or I see these people all better than me. And either way, when you start thinking more outside yourself than inside yourself, I'm not talking about being selfish, just your perspective, it's very easy to come away lost. Look what they've done. Look what they're going to do. All you've got to figure out is what you're supposed to do. One of the points we're going to make this year at CYC, uh, we're talking about storms in people's lives. And when you encounter a storm in your life, it's not what are you prepared to do, but it's what are you being prepared to do. You've walked this path, you've encountered this obstacle, and it's going to teach you to do something later for somebody else. So Elijah offers up this excuse. You know, they've t- torn down your altars. They've, they've, they've forsaken your covenant. they killed all your products. I'm the only guy left and now they're going to kill me. That's what he feels. What's the truth? Well, let's look at verse 17. We'll look at verse 16. God speaking now. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you get there anoint Hazel as king of Syria and you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as the king over Israel and Elisha the son of Saphon of Abel Mahalah you shall anoint his prophet in your place and it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel Jehu will kill and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu Elisha will kill and I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him now Elijah's big excuse is They've forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets and they're going to kill me. The truth is, number one, Hazel, Nimshi, and Elisha are going to do all the killing. Jehu, Hazel, and Elisha. He said, they're not going to be killing anybody. My people are not going to be doing the executions. So not only are they not going to kill you, they're going to be the ones being killed. Number two, you're not by yourself. i got 7,000 people who never bent their knee or puckered their lips toward Baal. You're not by yourself. That's 7,000 people. What Elijah felt and what Elijah should have known, two very different scenarios. Oh, and by the way, does Elijah even die? You know, the big deal here is they're going to kill me. Not only do they not kill you, you don't even die. You get to go to heaven in a whirlwind. You talk about... Cognitive distortion. He's so afraid of dying that he's one of two people that never has to encounter physical death. 
It's very easy in depression to let our interpretation of the circumstances be totally different than what the truth is. And so Elijah runs into this thing, and when he runs into this thing, he has to be confronted. First of all, you can't let other people's words have more power than they should. You can't let what people are doing be more powerful than what God has already done or God is going to do. You can't insulate yourself and let it become isolation. And then you've got to look at what is what do I feel about this, but what are the facts? And when facts and feelings overlap, you're doing good thinking. When facts and feelings don't overlap, there's no good thinking. Now what's the cure for this? Go back up to verse 5. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree, and an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake burned on coals and a jar of water, and he ate and he drank and lay back down again. The angel of the Lord came the second time and touched him again and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Not only did Elijah isolate himself and insulate himself, he became inactive and he quit feeding himself. And if you're going to overcome a spiritual crisis or a spiritual depression or even sometimes a psychological depression, you've got to ask yourself, what is it that I used to do that I'm not doing? Do I need to arise? And what are the things I do to nourish and feed myself that I'm not doing? And so many times when we get discouraged or depressed or or despondent, we stop doing things that need to be done. Uh, I work out with a guy uh, at the the jiu-jitsu place and he's a realtor. And one of his realty strategies is they have a KISS meeting every morning. KSS. What are the things that I need to keep doing? What are the things I need to stop doing? And what are the things I need to start doing? Folks, I found that to be very helpful information. God tells Elijah there's some things you need to keep doing, there's some things you need to start doing, and there's some things you need to stop doing. And when Elijah does that... He reinvigorates his relationship with God. He reinvigorates his ministry. He leaves the wilderness and goes back and anoints these guys as kings and even finds an intern prophet to take his place. When you get into a spiritual crisis, it's so very easy to look at the physical rather than the spiritual. When you get into a physical crisis, it's so easy to think about what people are doing or saying or not doing or not saying. and forget what God has said and what God has done and what God has promised to do. And if we'll keep those things in mind, it may be that we can, we can encounter these precipitating events, whether they're a crisis of a spiritual nature, an emotional nature, a physical nature, or a psychological nature, and go through those storms and not do this distorted thinking. Now, as we close today, it's paramount that I remind you Being a Christian, being a person of faith, will not change your circumstances. But being a Christian will mean that your circumstances do not have the power to change your faith. And that's what's super, super important. As you read the book of Hebrews and you find the list of in Hebrews chapter 11 of people whose the dead were raised, they, they put to flight armies of aliens, they silenced the sword, they closed the mouth of lions, and the very next verse says they were tortured, they were sawn asunder, they lived in caves, they wandered around in sheep and goat skins. People of faith, some of them had good circumstances, some had bad circumstances. The circumstances don't matter. It's our relationship with God that matters. So whether you feel like life is good or whether you feel like life is bad, life is temporary. Everybody in this building is going to die. 
Some of you will be at an old age and some will be at a young age. Some will be from cancer and some will be in car wrecks. Some of you will have heart attacks and some of you will have diseases. Some of you will die in violent action in the military. Some of us will die just out of it. It didn't seem like a purpose. But everybody in this room will die. Are you prepared for what happens after this temporary goes away? Are you prepared for what happens in eternity? And if you're not a Christian, if, if you don't have the hope of eternity, then yes, life is a miserable place. But if you have an eternity focus, then whatever situation you're in, whatever crisis you're in, you get to tell yourself, and this is not a cognitive distortion, you get to tell yourself it's only for a little while. What is 70 years compared to 70 billion years? And 70 billion years doesn't even touch eternity. So if you're not prepared to meet God, the main crisis I'm concerned about today is not depression but being lost. And if you're not a Christian and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're willing to repent. And that's not just... We've often talked about a U-turn with repentance. Repentance is defined in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Repentance is a cognitive action. It's almost like cognitive behavioral therapy for the soul. When you change the way you think... You therefore change the way you live. So when your faith in Jesus is strong enough that you make a decision to live for Him, you confess Him as Lord, you die to self, you're buried in water, you rise again to walk a new life. If you do that, then whatever crisis you're facing is temporary. And then you open the door to eternity. And if you're in this room today and you're not a Christian, I don't care what your circumstances are, if you're not a Christian, you're not prepared for eternity. And if you are a Christian and you've let some event derail you or or discourage you or dislodge you, maybe we've given you some tools to deal with that. But another tool that we can use to deal with that is we can pray with you and we can pray for you. God will forgive you if it's of a sinful nature. And if you're not a Christian, not only will we pray with you and for you, but we'll baptize you. And you can walk out of here knowing that when this temporary stuff fades away, you've got a spot secured in eternity. We're going to help you this morning. Please come forward while we stand and while we sing. Jesus is tenderly calling me home, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love will